I've invited him to speak here before. I invite him. One of the reasons I invite him is because I love saying his name, Svetobir Markovic. Um, I've known uh, Dr. Markovic uh, for about eight or nine years. I had went to an O'Leary conference, which is a Mayo Clinic conference, when I was working with Mayo Clinic, um, and it had a melanoma uh, theme to it. And Dr. Markovic came and talked on uh, some of the new up-and-coming um, things that are out there for melanoma. And, and I truly do that he's, do think that he's on the cutting edge of uh, some of the newest things coming on the market. Um, Dr. Markovic is uh, from Mayo Clinic. He was recognized as the Charles F. Mathy Professor of Melanoma Research. He's the chair of the Melanoma Study Group of the Mayo Clinic and serves as the chair of the Melanoma Working Group of the North Central Cancer Treatment Group, which is a national cancer cooperative group. He's a professor of medicine, oncology, and immunology, and most of what he is doing today is to try to find an answer to stop melanoma. Please welcome Dr. Svetovir Markovic. Good afternoon, everyone, and I would like to express my thanks to the organizers for inviting me to come from Minnesota in this month and give you a talk. Uh, I probably, I'm a medical oncologist, you guys, so, you know, when I look at a, at a pigmented skin lesion, I call a dermatologist. So what, what my job at the Mayo Clinic is, uh, is really the best thing in the world. My job is to make uh, the hopes of Dr. Bukai through science become a reality. I think we need to move beyond simply hoping for the cure and actually creating it. And hopefully what I'll share with you today is that there is more to the story than just hope. Uh, what the objectives that I had for you are really sort of to update you on some of the more clinically relevant aspects of the melanoma, of melanoma management and really focus my attention more to the advanced setting of this disease and sort of review some of the developing uh, efforts that we and others have done over the, several, over the last few years uh, to potentially outline some of the, uh, the, the scaffolding, what, what may possibly be the solution to this disease. Uh, what I decided to do for today, and uh, my, my, sh my talk is relatively short because last time when I, when I gave this talk, when uh, the organizers were kind of to invite me, there seemed to be so many questions at the end of my presentation that I thought rather than me sort of didactically go through the uh, 2,800 clinical trials that have been done in advanced melanoma since 1980, uh, it probably would be worthwhile to address your specific questions. So there will be time at the end uh, for me to address things. But I have to talk about something. So I thought I'd kind of break it down on diagnosis, prognosis, therapy, the near future developments. You know, every time I get, I get asked to talk about sort of the future of melanoma therapy a lot. And, you know, future is kind of a long-term condition. You know, I think uh, what my, one of my postdocs told me before I came here the other day may be the cure of melanoma in 40 years. But I think uh, I do want to find better solutions in my own lifetime for this disease. So maybe talk about something not, not so distant. And finally, at the end, like I said, I'll give you a bit of a summary, kind of take-home points, 
and then hopefully have a discussion, uh, discussion over this. And, uh, you know, I hope you have uh, questions that, that I can help answer uh, for you from, from, from the other side of, of melanoma management, from the medical oncology uh, piece. So the first thing is diagnosis. So what, what's new in diagnosis? Well, you know, everybody and their cousin, hopefully, and their cousin's cousin has seen the American Academy of Dermatology ABCD of melanoma. And, you know, we teach this to medical students, and I love my uh, melanoma lecture to our medical school. Uh, about halfway through the talk, everybody in the audience is looking at their skin and checking for lesions. Uh, and, you know, this is what happens to me when I walk in the mall back in Rochester, you know. People come up to me to look at their skin, skin lesion. I say, you know, here's a dermatologist you can go see. Uh, so basically, the, what I uh, impress upon our dermatology group is that, you know, I'm too busy. I haven't cured this yet. You guys are at the front line. The, the cure is in your hands, not in mine. So if anything looks remotely unusual or funny or the patient simply doesn't like it, take it off. Resect, biopsy, throw out whatever you do. Avoid any of your patients to come see me for their disease. When my uh, chairman heard about that, he didn't thought that was a good business strategy, but I think it's going to work. Anyway, so of you, what you know of, of the, the Breslow depth, Clark's level ulceration and transmetastasis, and we made a big deal of this in 2003 with the latest AJCC criteria. And uh, there's a lot of sort of little instruments out there that, that dermatologists use. And this is one that uh, our, uh, the melanoma group members uh, that are dermatologists and uh, dermatology uh, physician assistants like yourselves uh, use it at our institution is the Melafine instrument. Um, this is uh, directly a quote off of their website, which, uh, you know, I kind of didn't, didn't think I should paraphrase. Uh, and it's, it's interesting, it's a uh, sort of multi-wavelength uh, directed assistance device to help you better decide if something is worth a biopsy versus not a biopsy. Uh, this thing went to the FDA uh, in August of this year uh, for, for approval and I haven't heard yet what the final decision on that is. But my feeling, and, and remember, this is, I'm an oncologist who treats 15 pounds of melanoma in a patient. If something looks odd to you, Melafind or, you know, the Hubble telescope. It doesn't really matter. Just take it out. If you're wrong 9,999 times and you're right once, it's still worth it. And I'm a, I've got dysplastic nevi, believe me. It's like, it's funny when I go see my dermatologist. You know, they, they don't use instruments. They simply just start biopsy. So anyway, this is, this is something new. It's, it's coming out, you know, in this day of, of financial restrictions and the economy, et cetera, et cetera, reimbursement being what it is, I'm not sure how all this will play, but just uh, sort of to make you aware and be on the lookout, I think these things are coming. These are sort of computerized assistance devices that will make us uh, hopefully be better doctors. So we'll see. Uh, prognosis, I think, uh, is, is really, you know, again, sort of makes the, uh, makes the point of sometimes uh, going old school isn't that bad. Uh, Breslow's depth continues to be the most important prognostic indicator, and this little conglomeration will slide. Sort of gives you the, uh, the survival by, year, uh, by years, by 10-year survival rates uh, based on Breslow depth. And uh, Clark's levels, you know, have sort of fallen out of favor a little bit simply because uh, at least in our institution, you, you put uh, 10 biopsies, 10 dermatologists, you get 10 different Clark's levels. So I think with that regard, I think that's fallen out a little bit. 
And prognosis is, is, like I said, according to the AJCC, really defined by these four criteria. But what's coming on, as many of you know, uh, the new AJCC criteria, I'm referring to the American Joint Commission on Cancer, which is the acronym for AJCC, uh, is, uh, is a new member to the diagnostic profile is mitotic rates. Uh, all of these others are uh, various uh, predictive markers and biomarkers that have been used over the years, and they all have different levels of association with survival of patients with melanoma, as defined by the primary tumor. The mitotic rate is actually something that's been around for a long time. It's not in the uh, present agency system, uh, but many studies today, and this dates back to the 1980s, you know, most other malignancies, mitotic rates are very prognostic. And in melanoma, finally, by the time, you know, you took care of your breast cancer, your lung cancer, colon cancer, and everybody's prostate was well taken care of, then mitotic rates uh, were studied in melanoma. And, you know, no big surprise, they too reflect, have a positive associ association with survival. Mitosis are usually tabulated at number of mitotic figures per square millimeter in the dermal part of the tumor where virtually all of mit mitosis are identified. Uh, they, they have a significance in both thick and thin melanomas, and they are a significant predictor or lymph node positivity. And this is how something like, like this, uh, this looks like, and you can see the little black arrows uh, outline the uh, mitotic figures, uh, which are sort of the, the M phase of the DNA replication cycle in, in the sea of malignant melanocytes. Why is this important? It basically suggests a higher proliferative rate of the malignancy. And just to sort of draw a parallel, an acute leukemia, if we did this type of a, type of a slide on, 90% of the cells would be in mitotic rate versus two only, here we have three uh, that, that are proliferating. Of course, a more proliferating tumor is bad, a less proliferating tumor is less aggressive, hence the, the mitotic rate relevance. Uh, it is an pro important prognostic factor, and if you exclude mitotic rate, ulceration became an independent prognostic factor. And for, for reasons that I think we're still debating, uh, the last iteration of the AJCC thought ulceration would be uh, a more easily read uh, feature of the primary tumors, which is why it, but not the mitotic rate, was used. Uh, but I, I rest assured this, will be, this is part of the next staging criterion. And these are just a few more sort of the, of the data, the papers that actually ha are current or actually have been used uh, to confirm the fact that mitosis is relevant uh, and these are the papers that will be cited in the new uh, AJCC staging system supporting the use of mitotic rates in staging of melanoma. And this is sort of how it basically goes using multivariate analysis if you have no mitosis, you have uh, essentially greater than 95% survival at 10 years. And if you, if you have more than 10 mitoses, and this is just on the primary tumor biopsy, you, almost half the patients will be dead at 10 years. So it is, it is an important uh, parameter. Uh, and like I said, it will be uh, under the, as you guys know, that uh, AJCC is a uh, TNM stratification schema in which the tumor, the nodal status, and the metastatic rate are used to calculate prognosis. And this will be under the T category, uh, right with uh, bresel depth and ulceration. And the nodes, of course, uh, and metastases will remain. 
the problem with melanoma is, is that it's a deadly disease. And, you know, we can prognosticate all we want. And I have a, one of my colleagues is a, is a myeloma doctor. And at our institution, we have two big melanoma and myeloma clinics. Uh, and we oftentimes see uh, each other's patients because the secretaries kind of say, figure that's it's an OMA, so it's got to go, you know, one or the other. Uh, but I think melanoma is, is a particularly disturbing tumor to me because uh, William Osler referred to melanoma as the cancer that gives cancer a bad name. It is a tumor that has historically been resistant to our conventional forms of therapy, uh, and it's a tumor that, that has uh, sort of instilled fear in uh, the, the, the culture and has instilled fear into physicians, but somehow has not instilled fear into teenagers. Uh, and if anybody has any ideas how to do that, uh, it'll be good because even to this very day, Mayo has the largest melanoma practice in the United States and we have tanning uh, parlors four blocks away from the Mayo Clinic that are just, you know, uh, full around uh, the time of prom in our, in our small town of 70,000. So. Be that as it may, this is the AJCC uh, data that was used to discuss survival. And as you can see, stage one, over a 15-year period, stage one disease, uh, patients still die, and this is very close to the SEER uh, uh, predicted data for the patients in that age category. But patients with stage four melanoma do particularly poorly. And this is all comers, all treatments, everything that you can do to these folks. So therapy for stage uh, for the stages of melanoma is multimodal. And I can't overemphasize that point. Uh, in our practice, we, we are fortunate enough to, to, to have a, the size of a practice where one can subspecialize in all disciplines of medicine and focus their attention to melanoma. Therapy is very stage dependent, and I'll kind of walk you through uh, the stages of therapy, uh, or the stages uh, of disease, and kind of discuss a little bit about the therapy and sort of. Uh, spend some of my time on the experimental piece of this, which is the first-line treatment for stage 4 disease. And you can imagine if the first-line treatment for your disease, recommended by, you know, the brethren that knows about this, is experimental, it tells you that the things we have on the shelf right now probably aren't doing very well. So stage one disease, you know, these are your melanomas that are less than, uh, you know, one millimeter deep that don't invade very deeply, very superficial lesions, uh, negative lymph nodes. Uh, surgery in these patients is curative. Uh, surgical margins are basically, you know, sort of the one centimeter to two centimeter uh, margin. Uh, deep margins uh, are not really uh, well defined, and there's a study ongoing at the uh, uh, American College of Surgeons looking at, at this issue. But lateral margins are sort of based on millimeters of depth. Uh, anything less than one millimeter, one centimeter margin, and most surgeons will, and will do a two centimeter margin beyond that. These patients do very well. This is the type of melanoma that, you know, I, I would love to see more of. Uh, and fortunately, uh, increasingly we do uh, because we are much more aggressive in seeing this disease. Now, not only is the incidence of melanoma going up, but I think we as a community of healthcare providers are becoming more vigilant. Uh, in these types of patients, uh, because the prognosis is so excellent relative to the other stages of melanoma, adjuvant therapy or therapy that is made uh, whose sole design is to augment uh, the survival advantage in this cohort has really not been uh, developed. 
Stage two disease, these are deeper melanomas uh, into the skin. Still no lymph node involvement. Uh, surgery can be curative and is curative over two-thirds of the time. Uh, surgical margins, again, this is uh, something where we, we usually have our general surgeons uh, at our institution. Uh, we fortunately have a, a series of people that are interested in this type of thing, and they, uh, they operate uh, very frequently. The margins are difficult, as you know, on head and neck melanomas, where we have uh, sort of anatomical considerations that not, not always allow the, the margin that we would like. Uh, however, these patients still do very well. Uh, they do very well. Uh, there's been uh, no adjuvant therapy development of, of any magnitude because, um, again, approximately 70% of these folks will do fine and no additional treatment. But we are introducing cancer vaccines here. Uh, this is a patient population that is healthy, and the healthier the patient population, the more, uh, the more worried we become as to the level of toxicity we need to introduce in their overall management to try and make them live longer. So we've done trials actually increasingly in this patient population uh, using uh, sort of non-toxic treatments as vaccines against melanoma. Stage three melanoma is, uh, is kind of a, a different, uh, different issue. And this is a melanoma where one has, the tumor has not only uh, penetrated deeper into the skin, uh, the primary skin layers, but has now beaten the immune system at the level of the skin uh, has migrated to the lymphatic nodes and has actually survived within the lymph node. So much has happened from a stage two disease to stage three disease. Outcomes are dramatically worse in stage three disease, not because something at random took place and a cell flung off from the primary tumor and got into the node, but there have been a series of very predictable, and as we now understand, very remarkable biologic events that have allowed that tumor, that malignant phenotype, to, to beat the defenses and survive in the nodes. So this, is, uh, this, this tumor has now come to play. Surgical resection, uh, this is where we do sentinel lymph node biopsies and do lymphadenectomies to basically try and physically remove as much of these tumors as we possibly can. Uh, the problem is not the physical removal, the problem is the acquired phenotype, it's the biology of the disease. So here's where adjuvant therapy comes in. Here's where we as medical oncologists have made the calculated decision that taking a risk for these patients makes sense. 30% of these patients are only alive with surgery alone. More than half of them will die of their disease at some point in their life. Many things have been tried and failed in this condition. Uh, radiation therapy has been, was popularized uh, in the 80s as, as potentially the solution to this problem. Unfortunately, it, it, has, it has failed. Uh, radiation therapy in the adjuvant setting only really makes sense in one clinical condition, and I think this is worth remembering. If one has spillage of the tumor from the invading lymph nodes in the region of the resection, namely if there is a penetration to the uh, uh, lymph nodal capsule, by the malignancy, radiation will help. If there is multiple lymph nodes that are involved in the head and neck, due to the anatomic considerations of the procedure, the level of, of physical removal of the tumor is not satisfactory. That's where we recommend adjuvant radiation therapy. This should be done, adjuvant radiation treatment should be done at institutions that have an expertise in this disease. Radiation therapy for melanoma is high dose, high fraction dose. 
This is not your garden variety, lung cancer, breast cancer, low stuff. Melanoma is resistant to radiation. It requires aggressive treatment. Immunotherapy is one of the things that has been tested in malignant melanoma, and I think, uh, you know, I could probably spend a better part of this afternoon telling you about all the other things that haven't worked in this disease. Uh, you know, I'm a chemo doctor, and we've tried every single drug currently uh, used in, for the treatment of cancer in this country, or for the world for that matter, has been tested at one point or another in melanoma. Some drugs have even been named after melanoma in the hopes that they would work. Melphalan, you know, it's, it's a drug that's presently used for multiple myeloma. I guess they got the OMA wrong, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it was named for melanoma because of the great hopes that it would actually do something. Uh, today, the immunotherapeutic options that, that are before us are interferon alpha, which is approved by the Food and Drug Administration uh, for the use in adjuvant uh, stage 3 melanoma resected. Uh, granulocyte monocyte colony stimulating factor, which I'll tell you a little bit about. This is a, uh, something that we've used extensively, and I think uh, I have a medical resident right now that tells me we have over uh, 1,200 patients that we treated this way. And of course, the whole realm of cancer vaccines. Uh, the role of adjuvant interferon therapy uh, in resected stage 3 melanoma is about as hotly a debated topic in medicine as is religion. I think this has is, this is really uh, reached sort of biblical proportions as far as, as, as most of us are concerned. Uh, and, and the problem is, is, uh, is really simple. What we all do agree after 20 plus thousand of patients treated is that interferon does appear to delay tumor relapse. So if you're going to have a melanoma come, your melanoma likely will come about a year after it would, would have come otherwise. I think there have been, these are four studies that my old friend John Kirkwood put together in a meta-analysis that was reported a few years ago which basically shows the relapse-free survival advantage of adjuvant interferon therapy. Here's the overall survival data, and I'm basically showing you the Kaplan-Meier survival curves as they appeared in this manuscript. You know, you don't need a degree in biostatistics uh, to know that those curves look pretty much one on top of the other. And, and that's the problem, and I think interferon uh, is, a, is, a, is a drug that was discovered in 1953, no, I'm sorry, 53. Uh, it was uh, defined as the interfering agent to viral replication in chick embryos, hence the name interferon. The, drug, the drug's concentration, oops, I'm sorry, don't have, the drug's concentration is measured in its ability to inhibit uh, viral replication, okay? So the international units for interferon therapy are in viral replication inhibitory units. Its high dose principal effect is induction of apoptosis, and we have used it as an immunomodulator. And it hasn't worked. You know, I went into this business, I have a doctorate in interferon biology, believe it or not. I went into this business to understand this, this paradox. And um, unfortunately, I think interferon is a wonderful agent that we still do not understand how to use. Uh, the pegylated form of interferon uh, was uh, at the FDA about four weeks ago, uh, and they're in judgment uh, of, its, of its indication, of its uh, approval right now. 
Uh, unfortunately, this is a drug that I think uh, we need to do better. We owe it to our patients to do better because these types of survivals data are, are we can do better. If we can put a Hubble telescope in space, if we can, uh, what is it, in 2015, the, the orbital hotel will go up. If we can do that, we can definitely make patients with stage 3 melanoma not have to go through the hell and horror of high-dose interferon therapy, which I have to tell you, most patients cannot go through. Uh, I've treated a lot, and it's not a pretty picture. And for what? So that they can simply just die the same duration, live the same life that they could have anyway. GMCSF is a different story. Now, many of you may have heard about this agent. It's a granulocyte macrophage colony stimulating factor. This is an agent that was used in the bone marrow transplant world for years to support marrow engraftment after transplant with an allogeneic donor. But what happened is in the year 2000, a colleague of ours from uh, San Francisco, Dr. Lynn Spittler, published a study where uh, what she did is she looked at the, uh, giving GMCSF as the second recombinant immune modulating agent to patients with resected uh, advanced melanomas and asked the question if they lived longer or not compared to a similar cohort. She did a small study, got published in, the, uh, in our professional journal, the American Journal of Clinical Oncology, and there was a dramatic improvement in survival. What was the, the kicker here was that this drug was completely asymptomatic. Patients took it for a year, had no symptoms. It was, it, this is a hormone of the immune system that, as we now know today, modulates one of the critical elements of immune escape inducted by the tumor. So it fixes the immunologic problem created by the melanoma. Uh, Dr. David Lawson, an old friend of mine, uh, conducted, uh, put together this very large clinical trial, E4697, which basically took patients with resected high-level stage 3 melanoma, multiple lymph nodes positive, and resected metastatic disease, and randomized them to a cancer vaccine versus GMCSF versus placebo. This is probably the last placebo-controlled trial that will ever be done in, in advanced melanoma. It, it took 10 years to accrue because, you know, who wants to go on something like this? Uh, and the results of the trial are, will be presented uh, in, May of next, in June of next year at our national meeting. Uh, but I think what's, what's interesting about it is that it brings, it brings uh, forward a potentially non-toxic solution uh, to this problem. And, and we, will, we will have that answer. Other things that have been tried in stage 3 melanoma uh, have been experimental. And I'm glad I put ipilimumab on there because this was uh, mentioned by the previous speaker. Uh, ipilimumab is a, uh, is a work that was uh, translated from uh, a laboratory at Memorial Sloan Kettering, uh, which studied T-cell activation. And as you guys know, interleukin-2 activates all T-cells. Ipilimumab activates only T-cells that are active, so, so somehow reduces the number of the overactive T-cells in your body that could potentially, that produces a lot of toxicity. So the idea was that uh, this could potentially be a lesser toxic agent that could help. Ipilimumab, unfortunately, uh, was a failure in phase three clinical testing in advanced melanoma, and we are currently gearing up uh, with uh, nationally in the United States and in Europe uh, for two large phase three clinical trials using ipilimumab in the advanced, in the resected melanoma setting. Uh, there is a number of cancer vaccines, and we've published on this, many have published on this. We have two papers coming out on this, hopefully next year, uh, suggesting that uh, 
we potentially may have identified uh, a way to make cancer vaccines effective. The biggest problem with cancer vaccines, guys, is you know, you're immunizing against your own self. If you look at malignant melanomas, you know, the, the DNA difference between humans and chimpanzees is only 6%. The, the, the difference between a, a melanoma and a normal counterpart is less than one hundredth of one percent. So I'm trying to make a vaccine against this. And so, you know, and vaccines are based on big differences. You know, you can, it's easy to make a vaccine against anthrax or, you know, H1N1, God only knows, that didn't taste very well. But all these other things are complicated. So we need to figure out ways how to make them work. And uh, uh, we're, I think we have, a, we have a sort of a clever little game on this that hopefully we'll, uh, we'll present. You all will be reading about uh, later next year. Where I spend most of my waking hours when I'm not uh, with my children or, or uh, telling folks about melanoma is dealing with metastatic disease. Uh, we at the Mayo Clinic have made a conscious decision that something needed to be done about this and you know we, we are at a, at a massive institution that does a lot of this kind of work and we were going to decide 10 years ago to put a stop to this and uh, we, we've done a lot of work and I'll share with you some of it. Today in stage 4 melanoma uh, the two approved agents are decarbazine and interleukin-2. Neither one of these agents improves the overall survival of patients with this disease. Anecdotes notwithstanding. Okay? I want to re reiterate that point. Today, the FDA-approved drugs for the treatment of metastatic melanoma have no impact on survival. Okay? There is the hope of the long-term outcomes in the less than 5%, which we all dearly hold dear. But if you want to get a treatment that will change the, the lifetime expectations of our population, we do not have it today. That's why we do experimental therapeutics in this disease. That's why I get out of bed every morning and go to work. This is what, where the battle line is drawn. There have been three general approaches in this disease and I will walk you through them and hopefully uh, at the end of all of this you'll feel a little more positive than what I just said. Biochemotherapy, BRAF inhibitors and angiogenesis inhibitors. Biochemotherapy was a treatment that sort of uh, was born out of the sheer desperation of those of us like me who are facing patients that the, the minute we meet them we know that we will be going to their funeral in the next seven months. You know, I've been to enough patient funerals already. I'm plenty full of. Thank you very much. This treatment consisted of combining of every single agent ever used in chemotherapy of this disease and putting it together and using the old Nietzsche approach, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But we were just that desperate. A large study was done. 416 patients with stage 4 melanoma were treated with nearly fatal doses of chemotherapy. This is really kind of Old Testament type of stuff, you guys. And for what reason? Median survival was completely unchanged. 8.7 months of the comp total complement of therapy versus just the chemotherapy component of 9 months. It turned out the toxicity ratio in the patients that got the full dose was just horrific. So going toxic does not necessarily mean being effective. I often have this conversation with my younger patients and they say, Doc, just do whatever you want. I don't care. I can take it. And I told them, I said, you know what? If my job was to make you sick, I've got that thing down no problem. 
making you better that's the trick and that's where where we come in we had great hopes five years ago that a drug called serafinib or Bay 439006 which is a which was at that time believed to be an inhibitor of what appears to be a muta- mutated pathway in malignant melanoma yes we in melanoma finally had our gene uh, the RAFRAS kinase signaling pathway is frequently mutated in melanoma. It's an oncogene that's upregulated in melanoma and other cancers as well, including primary hepatocellular tumors. A friend of mine, uh, Dr. Keith Flaherty, who at the time was at the University of Pennsylvania, did a phase one trial in which they completely didn't expect that this drug would work in combination with taxol and carboplatin. And taxol and carboplatin to an oncologist are kind of like userine cream to a dermatologist. I mean, we've got it everywhere. You know, it's, 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 you know, it's almost spilling on the floor. We did a randomized phase two trial, at least at Mayo Clinic, so I'm not, I don't want to imply anything. Uh, at least at Mayo Clinic, uh, what we did is we, we looked at this agent, looked very promising. It was a clinical trial, two, 315 patients. Uh, were, were initially screened, 270 randomized. This is all stage four melanoma. This is all kind of the real bad stuff, you guys. Randomized half took uh, uh, carboplatin and paclitaxel, which is a CP. The other half got serafinib, uh, which is the uh, BRAF inhibitor, uh, carbotaxel. And the bottom line is, again, no difference in survival. Okay? Very depressed about this. Because, you know, in oncology, when you do this job that, that, that I do, we, we kind of have this sort of secret hope that someday we will find the magic bullet, that the, the, the approach to the, the, the road to the cure, and believe you me, I am in the foxhole in the road to the battle for the cure, will come from a magical bullet, that we will somehow, something will trigger once, and all the cars will, will fall. The answer is not really that. So let me tell you about the series of base hits that we've had, not home runs, but solid base hits uh, that I think are, are creating what appears to be the pattern of this disease and its vulnerabilities, which I can guarantee you we will take full advantage of. In 2003, we wrote a study combining two interesting drugs, carboplatin and paclitaxel, which we at this time had published uh, was an effective regimen in melanoma, something that simply delayed disease progression, but was actually able to do that. That's the first combo that actually did that. And we added a drug called bevacizumab. This, this drug at that time was sort of a fairly newcomer to the oncology palette. Uh, it was a, a monoclonal antibody that actually bound a vascular endothelial growth factor. And VEGF, which is, is its acronym, uh, is uh, something that uh, I hope you will uh, leave my presentation as something that should never be even spoken next to a melanoma patient. Turns out vascular endothelial growth factor is about 100 to 1,000 times in greater concentration in patients' blood that have melanoma versus those that don't. But what's also even more interesting is that when you give chemotherapy to a melanoma patient, the malignant melanocytes massively upregulate, almost on a logarithmic scale, their ability to secrete vascular endothelial growth factor, its family members, as well as its receptors. So what we said, I was like, wow, this must be important. You know, I'm, not, I'm a pretty limited guy. You know, I think something that changes a thousandfold, it probably catches my attention. So what we did is we decided to do our single-arm phase two study in, in our cooperative group, and we basically gave patients this combination. And the idea was, could we make the tumor need VEGF and then not, and block it from using it? 
And lo and behold, uh, the NL47A study was done. Presented overall survival, 12 months, progression-free survival, six months. Now, you guys may think this is really not all that great. Uh, and most overall survival data in melanoma is nine months. Most progression-free survival data points in melanoma are six months. This, believe it or not, is the most effective clinical outcome of any clinical trial conducted by the U.S. cooperative cancer groups since, its conception, since their conception in the last 40 years. This is the first shift of the progression-free survival time beyond, at, at six months. So this is tantamount to the miracle mile that we've seen. So this basically had a, a big drug company invest into this whole process. You know, we're, we're poor academics. You know, I can have all the ideas, all the science done, but then big pharma takes over. And they did another trial in which they basically showed when they randomized taxyl carboplatin avastin, or bevacizumab, versus taxyl and carboplatin, they, they're starting to show a survival advantage to the taxyl carboplatin arm. This is a very mild chemotherapy option. The Avastin is virtually asymptomatic with the exception of hyperhypertension, which is easily managed. And this is now gearing up to be a big phase three clinical trial to establish the first study, the first combination regimen to in fact prolong survival in stage four melanoma. It's every, most people still die, so we're not there yet. But the interplay between melanoma and angiogenesis and VEGF is very important. So I think before I sort of tell you about the summary, well, let me tell you about the summary. So stage one and stage two, surgery is key, okay? Everybody needs to get a good surgeon, have this thing cut out, forget about it. Stage three, adjuvant therapy, I think, I, I usually do, we have experimental treatments for this uh, at our institution. We recommend people seek experimental therapy for this disease. If they don't have access to that, GMCSF could be used off-label, but there's a re reimbursement issue. Interferon is the, is, the, is the evil we know. It's there. It will delay progression-free survival time. It can work, and it does work in a small subset of patients, but we can't know that ahead of time. So it's something that, that can be used on a selected basis. For stage four disease, experimental therapeutics. Experimental therapeutics, experimental therapeutics. What are the upcoming new things? So one of, some of the, and this is where, where basically I'll try to, I'll try to finish and uh, tell you a little bit about the things that are in the near future. One of the very, when we realized this whole VEGF melanoma business, uh, you guys, um, and I didn't tell you about all the other things that we tried that didn't work. Uh, we, all melanoma oncologists have a portfolio of that. What's interesting is that melanoma behaves, the tumor itself behaves very much like the placenta. My wife's a cardiologist. She always tells me, she says, oh, it took you this long to figure that out? Women always had the answer. Uh, and the way we're approaching this problem is that when we looked at, we, we went back and looked at uh, the 85 most significant bio, uh, immunologic modulators, the 85 things that allow placenta to survive and our species to propagate. 82 of those 85 genes that, that, that induce, that allow the placenta to survive against the, body, the mother's immune system, 82 of those 85 are present accounted for and active in metastatic melanoma. 
The natural history of anti-tumor immunity is very, very interesting. There is a relationship to surgery, and what's interesting about it is the time of immunization may dramatically affect outcomes. How many of you would be surprised if I told you that the immune system cycles on a two-week cycle? When usually when there's a little more men in the room, it's kind of this, like, ah, you know. <laughs> but I guess, interestingly enough, immunity is not a constant. Immunity today in a normal individual or in a patient with melanoma is not the same as immunity tomorrow or the immunity the next day. It fluctuates, and depending on when you immunize, and we now have methods to, to do this, and we'll be testing this in a, in a clinical trial here in, in about uh, two months, Depending if you deliver the vaccine at one time versus another, you get a completely different immunologic response. If you give IL-2 at one time versus another, you may give a completely different immunologic response. It's a very interesting find that we've, we're working on with colleagues from uh, Australia. Response-adjusted systemic therapy for stage 4 melanoma is something that we're working on right now. And here's the story. You know, we, we oncologists are very simple people. We say, you know, if we could only, if patients would only not have these side effects and we could only give them enough chemo, all would be well in this world. Okay? Now, you know how drugs in oncology are dosed. They're not dosed to effective dose. They're dosed to maximally tolerated dose. Okay? And for some reason in our field, the, the mantra has always been, drug one maybe works, drug two maybe works, Two maybe works, maybe work even better together. But what's interesting is that sequence of drug delivery is something that we've never really studied. What's interesting uh, is, as well is that when we did that one study that I showed you, that, that trial where we combined bevacizumab, Taxil, and Avastin, uh, and asked the question, did this treatment affect immunity in any way? Uh, what is coming in a paper probably in February of, this, of next year is that what we found to correlate the most with the clinical outcomes in this first positive study, looks like, in advanced melanoma, was not the fact that angiogenesis was perturbed, was not the fact that tumor cells were killed, but was that immun immunity in these patients was normalized, allowing the reemergence of active anti-tumor immunity to take place. So we had a combination of angiogenesis targeting agents, conventional chemotherapy, producing a beneficial effect of immune reconstitution. And the mistake that we made in that study is that we kept giving chemotherapy and giving chemotherapy and giving chemotherapy and giving chemotherapy. We wiped out the beneficial effect that we had created early on. And guess what? As those parameters went down, so came the tumor back. So one of the bigger projects we have right now, study that's opening uh, probably Monday, is a sequential chemoimmunotherapy approach, where we, in essence, do what the pediatric oncologists have done for, for decades. We induce remissions, or we stabilize disease, and then we rebuild anti-tumor immunity by every which way possible. Because not only do we now know when to time this, we now seem to know how to reprogram it so that IL-2 therapy will not work 4% of the time, but may potentially work 100% of the time. Remember, all of immunotherapy depends on a functional endogenous immunity. If you're trying to bleed a tree, odds are you won't get any blood. 
But if you're trying, if you reprogram immunity to a way so it can positively respond to what you're trying to achieve, outcomes may be far different and far better. And no talk, I guess, since uh, our ESMO meeting in Berlin would be uh, complete without mentioning the new BRAF targeting agent. It's an agent from a company in California, uh, it's a Plexicon. This is a more effective BRAF, agent, BRAF inhibitor that again has shown some activity against melanoma. It is, the, it is a targeted therapy strategy that I think will be part of these combinatorial therapeutic strategies that we and everyone else is now working on uh, and hopefully bring us, bring us closer. Uh, and like I said, the, uh, it is, we simply, I think, what, what we found ourselves in, in this disease, uh, in, in the metastatic, uh, in the field of metastatic melanoma, is that we need to rethink the very fundamentals of oncology and, and cancer biology. And as we've started to do very simple experiments and very simple perturbations, we're finding very positive outcomes. And I think in that regard, uh, we will hopefully be successful. So with that, I will thank you for getting me out of this and take any questions. I have another question, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, I'm wondering, do you ever use a cyber knife? And yeah. if so, does it increase survival time or only disease-free survival in metastatic? No, well, here's, here's, so CyberKnife applied in the brain versus CyberKnife applied in the body. You know, I think uh, right now we're increasingly using CyberKnife instead of whole brain radiation for the brain, you know, the gamma. Yeah. Uh, simply because uh, the toxic effect of radiation to melanomas is very dose dependent. CyberKnife and GammaKnife are far more effective. It does not seem to affect overall survival, but it's not for the reasons that, that it's failure at the site of radiation, it's for the reasons of systemic disease progression. Uh, so yeah, I think we have, I think for oligometastatic disease in the body, especially in the brain, we are increasingly using that in combination with our treatment. Okay, thank you. Sure. Okay, I guess that's it. Thank you very much.